Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala and I'm your host. Our focus for this episode is Exercise Cutlass Fury, a biennial, Canadian-led, multinational exercise that provides an opportunity for Allied forces to train in a joint maritime environment. This training includes anti-submarine warfare, air defense, and surface warfare, to name a few. Joining me for this episode is Commodore Trevor McLean of the Royal Canadian Navy. Commodore McLean is the commander of Canada's Atlantic Fleet, and he was the senior officer at sea leading Exercise Cutlass Fury 23. The principal focus of Exercise Cutlass Fury is anti-submarine warfare, but it's certainly not limited to that alone. Also exercised is air and maritime integration and interoperability between allies and joint elements. The exercise happened in September, and there were approximately 1,400 participating sailors, soldiers, and aviators from the Armed Forces of Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, Germany, and France. Eight ships from the Royal Canadian Navy and U.S. Navy took part this year, and key among them was a U.S. Navy Virginia-class attack submarine. In addition, multiple classes and types of aircraft participated, including the CP-140 Aurora and the CH-148 Cyclone from Canada, the P-8 Poseidon from the U.K., the P-3 Orion from Germany, and the Atlantique Maritime Patrol aircraft from France. There was a lot to the exercise, but some of the key things to listen for include the opportunity for the Royal Canadian Navy to use one of its new Arctic and offshore patrol vessels as a target launching platform, using the Royal Canadian Navy's Distributed Mission Operations Centre, or DMOC, in the exercise, and exercising Link 11 and Link 16 connectivity. You'll also hear about the Royal Canadian Navy's need to modernize its Halifax-class frigates so it stays relevant into the future, and you'll hear about the distributed training that's planned for the future. It's a great chat with a lot of insight, so we thank Commodore McLean for his time. We really hope you'll enjoy this episode of Go Bold, and let's roll the music. everybody, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala and I'm your host. And today I am very happy to welcome to the podcast Commodore Trevor McLean of the Royal Canadian Navy. And Commodore McLean is the commander of Canada's Atlantic Fleet, which is based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Commodore, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to have you on the program. Jody, really happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, sir. It's a, it's a great pleasure to have you here. This is the first time that you're joining me on this podcast, and mm-hmm. as I do with all of my guests, I start by asking, what was your motivation to serve, and what made you pick the branch that you did? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I, well, I come from a military family, so um, several generations in, and my dad uh, started in the Navy, actually flew off the Bonaventure, um, and so he was a pilot. Um, so to be completely honest, um, my after, after seeing Top Gun in the theater when we lived in California for a while, I wanted to be a pilot, uh, but uh, the eyes didn't cut the mustard when I went to uh, to join. Um, and by then, I had figured out we didn't have any air, aircraft carriers anyway. So, right. um, so the luster was kind of off there uh, uh, anyway. Uh, but uh, 
Uh, dad uh, considered himself to be a Navy man uh, throughout his career, even when uh, Bonaventure was retired and he switched to the Air Force uh, after a few years flying off Intrepid with the Americans. Um, so he always spoke uh, highly of the Navy and uh, he had a couple of Navy friends and I got a chance as a young uh, young boy to, to get uh, aboard uh, HMCS Huron when it was still in Halifax. And I was quite taken by that experience. So it was an easy decision for me once pilot was quickly off the uh, off the table. Um, it was a it was a close second anyway. So uh, yeah, so the Navy was it, and uh, couldn't uh, couldn't be happier with the the choice I made. Well, clearly you've done very well for yourself, at, you know, to achieve the rank of Commodore and to you know have the position that you do to lead the men and women that you do of the Royal Canadian Navy on the Atlantic coast. Um, for those that aren't familiar, because, you know, this podcast includes many senior leaders from around the world. So for those that are not familiar of the Royal Canadian Navy, specifically the Atlantic Fleet, how would you describe it? Well, the, the Atlantic Fleet, really, we are responsible for generating naval forces for employment uh, on operations, on named operations. Um, so the fleet is uh, about 2,200 sailors. Uh, we've uh, got seven Halifax-class frigates, six uh, Kingston-class maritime coastal defense vessels, um, and we're up to four Arctic and offshore patrol vessels um, and employing them uh, regularly now uh, and the fleet uh, diving unit as well. And the team and I are responsible to make sure that when it's time to deploy a ship, they're ready to go. Uh, the ship is technically ready. And the crew is trained and prepared for the mission. And you also have a submarine, I believe, attached to your formation. Yeah, there is. Uh, HMCS Windsor is on the East Coast right now. Technically, the submarines fall under the command of the commander of the Canadian Submarine Force, based on the West Coast. Uh, but the submarine, when it's on the coast, is is uh, still under their command. Uh, that said... Um, we do work closely and, and obviously there's a lot of coordination going on there because uh, we share the same maintenance facility. Um, we use the same water space and, and uh, there's no better training than when we train together. Yeah, I'm thankful for that distinction, Commodore. That That's really interesting. And yeah, I think as we carry on in this conversation, um, the importance of submarines will become clear to people. Mm. Um, it's great that you have one out there and, uh, and hopefully that's a persistent capability. And uh, in the future, you know, hopefully a new submarine, uh, you know, once the Canadian patrol submarine project, I think that's, yep. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully once that comes online uh, in the future, um, mm -hmm. But for purposes of this conversation, we're going to be focusing specifically on exercise Cutlass Fury, which uh, mm -hmm. which recently wrapped up on the Atlantic coast. Um, so there were some really interesting aspects to the exercise. But before we get into that, uh, you know, I just want to ask you, because you mentioned that you now have four Arctic offshore patrol vessels in the Atlantic fleet. That's pretty cool because they are the newest ships in the Royal Canadian Navy. And I know that you'll speak about it when we talk about Cutlass Fury because one of them participated, but what does that mean to the Navy about having that new class of ship? Well, first and foremost, it's exciting uh, because it is the first class of ship in some time, and they are the, uh, the leading edge of the largest recapitalization we've had since the Second World War. So it's really energizing for the sailors to get these new platforms and to see them enter service. 
Um, and it's going to be fantastic because uh, although HMCS Harry DeWolf, after um, uh, transiting the Northwest Passage a couple of years ago, did stop in Victoria, uh, this winter uh, we'll be um, transferring uh, the coast of HMCS Max Bernays, um, who will be joining the Pacific Fleet. And my, uh, my counterpart on the West Coast is extremely excited for the fleet to get their hands on Max Bernays so they can get the same energy that uh, the sailors in our fleet in Halifax um, have had for a few years now. So uh, yeah, really exciting time. Um, and of course the capability that, that those ships bring is extremely exciting. Um, to be honest, I was a former project director, uh, you know, over 10 years ago now. So it is near and dear to my heart. Uh, and I know what these ships, what they can do. Um, obviously there's the Arctic capability really extending our season in the Arctic and being able to establish a Canadian presence in our Arctic, which is absolutely critical. You've got to be able to patrol your own water. But of course, other missions that we, we've been executing with uh, either Halifax class or, or MCDVs, these ships are far more capable because of the, the way they're designed, the way they're built. Um, anything from, uh, from counter uh, drug operations, they're going to be extremely capable to do that operating in the South or operations in the North or even off the coast of Africa. Um, so we no longer have to send a war fighting frigate to go do these missions, um, or a vessel that could be focusing on developing our mine warfare capability. We have these ships that are tailored designed for these kind of continental defense missions. So really, really exciting. But I, like I said, I think the most exciting part is the fact that it is the leading edge of this massive recapitalization. Yeah, it's very exciting times. And you make a really good point about uh, them being able to participate in some of the operations that the Royal Canadian Navy does, like Op Carib, the counter-narcotics operation that you mentioned. But I always think, because I've had some colorful experiences of being on MCDVs off the west mm -hmm. coast of Canada in some pretty crappy weather, <laughs> to put it mm -hmm. bluntly, and I cannot, for the, for the life of me, think about what it'd be like to transit the Atlantic and go towards Africa. So knowing that the AOPS is a larger ship, perhaps better seakeeping, uh, I think that's a great thing for the sailors. Mm -hmm. Yes. The Kingston class, just because you touched on it, we do send them across the ocean, like you say, to Africa, and two ships just returned uh, HMCS Shawinigan and Summerside from Op Reassurance in the Baltic and in the North Sea, where they integrated with the NATO fleet doing countermine operations. Uh, the second time we've done this deployment, and um, just... A remarkable experience for the 45-ish sailors in each ship. So, um, yeah, really exciting. Yeah, and that actually touched on the other aspect that you were saying is that with the AOPS, your Kingston class, the, the MCDVs, can refocus on their countermine, uh, I guess, capability. And that, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, is being exercised by these two ships that returned. Um, but that is kind of speaking to the world that we're in, where mine warfare and countermine warfare, uh, or I guess really that's it, countermine warfare in this case, um, is coming to a fore again. Yeah, it's um, unfortunately, um, I don't see it ever going away. It's uh, cheap and extremely effective. You, uh, you don't need to put many mines in the water to deny uh, a chunk of the ocean from uh, from your adversary. So and everybody's well aware of that. Um, and I think what we're seeing in the Black Sea is, uh, yeah, proof that, that, that it's not going away anytime soon. 
Yeah. And like you said, you know, that 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 threat has always been there, but this recapitalization of the Canadian Navy fleet is enabling you to have those assets devote their time to to that and then shift what they were doing over to the AOPS. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, like I said, exciting for us. It was a skill that uh, I would say we probably let atrophy a bit too much. Um, so we're regenerating that skill set. And uh, the mission with the NATO fleet is uh, just the perfect uh, place for us to learn from some of our great allies. Yeah, right on. Well, it'll be interesting to see what lessons and how that deployment went. Um, I'm sure there'll be some good follow-up for the rest of the fleet because obviously those classes are split between both coasts. So, mm-hmm. um, And you mentioned your colleague on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. I just got to give yeah. a plug for this. Uh, and that's yeah. Commodore David Mazur, who was a guest on episode 49 of Go Bold, where we were talking about exercise, tried and fury. And okay. so- yeah, so exercise Trident Fury is the signature exercise on the West Coast, and that leads me to talking to you because exercise Cutlass Fury is a signature exercise on the East Coast. It is, and uh, it is run every two years, correct? That is correct. Yeah, right on. So this happens to be a Cutlass Fury year, and one of the things that I found really interesting about this, and and I. I find it reassuring to know that the Navy takes this seriously, was that Defense Research and Development Canada, DRDC, uh, participated prior to the exercise with their marine mammal risk mitigation efforts. And I thought that was just kind of cool. Like, I mean, I I think that is being good stewards of the ocean that you're sailing in and, you know, looking out for the mammals out there. And for those that don't know what that is, perhaps maybe you can enlighten folks, uh, Commodore. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we uh, take every measure, every measure we can to um, maintain our environment, our duty of uh, environmental stewardship. Um, we take it uh, extremely seriously. Uh, so we work closely with the uh, Department of Fishery and Oceans, uh, DRDC, as you mentioned. We have a wonderful uh, safety and environment team within the Maritime Forces Atlantic team, um, and they all work together to, to make sure that. Um, they're integrated throughout the planning process for the exercise, and all of the um, all of the plans are shaped around where we believe all of the the marine mammals are transiting or uh, living at that point, and we just we avoid it. Um, and then we have very strict plans if we do encounter marine mammals at sea to ensure that we keep them safe um, and minimize any impact that our uh, operations are having on the wildlife. And obviously, you know, you don't want to hit anything like a whale or what have you, but it's also sound, right? Because part mm-hmm. of the exercise, as, as you will share, uh, I believe, is, you know, navies need to use sonars. And um, so if you're using active, you're pinging into the water, kind of like those old World War II movies. And uh, I guess the idea here is that you really just want to be as far away from any mammals so they're not impacted negatively by the things that you guys are, are exercising. Yeah, exactly right. So, and it all starts with the yeah, understanding where the animals are, uh, where we believe they are, and uh, avoiding those areas. But then, even when we operate the um, sonars, we will take a measured approach to activating them. We have a, a, a very deliberate process so that we slowly ramp things up. Um, and if a mammal is encountered, then we cease transmitting immediately. Um, but uh, yeah, all with the intent to keep them as safe as possible and minimize any impact that we may have. 
Yeah, I think that's great. It's a great way to um, execute the training that you need to do in a responsible way. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we get in earnest into Exercise Cutlass Fury, I guess we should talk a little bit about the International Fleet Week that immediately preceded it, because they're kind of tied in, in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm really happy you brought it up, uh, because it was the first uh, of its kind this this year. Um, and it's really started in the mind of uh, the Member of Parliament in Halifax, uh, Andy Fillmore. Um, and as soon as I caught wind of, of the notion, um, we were all in uh, and uh, thought it was a wonderful idea. One of the one of the most challenging things for the Navy, to be quite honest, is communicating with Canadians. Um, obviously, the vast majority of our population is in the center of Canada. Uh, so finding opportunities to really communicate with Canadians and let them know what it is that their Navy does uh, on day to day and demystify the institution and demystify everything about it is important. So it was a wonderful opportunity to get our allies into Halifax, um, get our ships downtown, let Canadians get on board our ships, actually interact with our sailors either on the ships or uh, in the city, all of the, all of the, uh, the sailors were wearing uniform in town and the city was just absolutely wonderful. Um, Halifax uh, jumped on board and was so supportive. The local businesses um, uh, welcomed all of our sailors, all the foreign sailors to just a wonderful week downtown. It was music and lots of excitement. Um, really trying to generate the same kind of excitement that we see when we go to fleet weeks in other countries. Um, you know, there's San Francisco or New York, big cities like that. And um, when we have events throughout the week, I'd say the the ultimate event, which was the sail passed on the last day. Um, and I was in the flagship in Charlottetown and we were leading the task group out through the bridges and out past downtown. The sailors were crewing the ship sides uh, as we as we did so. Beautiful weather, sun was shining and we were sailing by to uh, salute the uh, commander of the Navy on our way out. Admiral Topshi was, was there. And the downtown waterfront um, which is beautiful anyway, was lined with over 40,000 people cheering, waving flags. I've been in the Navy for 30 years, and I have never seen anything like that. And uh, in all my conversations with sailors since the event, um, they were just inspired beyond belief. And I'll tell you, just a pat on the back like that, and knowing that uh, Canadians appreciate what they do and, and value what they do, is going to go a long way. And I think uh, we owe it to our incredible sailors to uh, to show them that kind of appreciation every couple of years. It was a moving event for me and, and just to see the, the impact of that on the sailors. So just a wonderful week and all that to say, you know, the opportunity and I think, you know, we strengthened the bond with the city of Halifax. Unlike Victoria, where Esquimalt Harbor is a bit, uh, a bit away from, you know, five kilometers away from downtown. In Halifax, people are driving over the dockyard to get to work every day. But it still feels like uh, sometimes that there's a uh, a wall there, like they don't see us. This kind of helped break that down, and I felt some real uh, real momentum. So I'm already looking forward to to the next one in a couple of years. I'm heartened to hear that. I'm envious of you to experience it because it would have been awesome to see that in person. But I'm glad forty thousand Canadians and and others got to see it mm-hmm. as well. I grew up on the west coast of Canada, and one of the things that I really like that has changed out here on the west coast is 
And I always kind of wondered why it didn't happen. But when ships would deploy, you know, there'd be a ceremony in the dockyard and what have you, and there'd be the formal salute as they as they passed Dunce Head. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then they were gone. But now it was Admiral Topshi that uh, started this process by saying, you know, the ships should sail by Victoria, the waterfront of Victoria, as they wheel out to sea. And, mm-hmm. you know, just as a, as a goodbye as they depart on deployment. And I love that because mm-hmm. I'm one of the guys that gets out there and, and watches some any chance I can. And it's wonderful to see that you guys are, are doing the International Fleet Week. I, I'm envious of you on the East Coast because your geography is such that you're closer to different mm-hmm. allies as opposed to mm-hmm. the West Coast where distances are massive. They are. They are. Yeah, absolutely. I've uh, And I've I've split time on the, as you know, I, I sailed on the West Coast for about eight years as well. And it's, yeah, different ball game in the Pacific. It's a real long way to get anywhere aside from uh, the United States. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but, you know, I will live in hope. Maybe maybe there's yeah. a chance for a Fleet Week out here at some point in time. But now, if I understand you correctly, this International Fleet Week is going to be a biennial event. Yeah, that's the that's the plan. Um, is linking it up with Cutlass Fury. Um, so when our allies come to participate in the exercise, they can come a few days beforehand to enjoy the hospitality that uh, Halifax has to offer. Right on. Yeah, I think that's a great strategy, and that is a perfect segue into mm. exercise Cutlass Fury. So uh, I take it that when you were leading the fleet on Charlottetown and and having the fleet pass by the bridges and and head out. Uh, that was marking the beginning of Cutlass Fury. Correct. Yeah, we uh, we saluted Admiral Topshi and off we went uh, off the coast of Nova Scotia uh, for a couple of weeks of uh, fantastic work together. So really wonderful. Uh, this uh, this year's Cutlass Fury was, uh, the, as far as the ships at sea, it was just down to Canadian and uh, ships from the United States Navy, um, which is understandable given the fact that there's a war in Europe. Um, so a little, a little tougher for some of the Europe, other European nations to, uh, to, to get over with, uh, with ships. Um, but we had lots of participation from, uh, maritime, uh, air from, uh, maritime patrol aircraft from allies, uh, European allies that came out and, uh, yeah, two weeks primarily focused on ASW, uh, on anti-submarine warfare, but, uh, with a smattering of anti-surface and anti-air warfare throughout as well. Um, as well as some uh, information warfare serials where we, we uh, uh, practiced um, some key elements uh, of that uh, as well. Um, and then, of course, seamanship. So, um, you know, getting a chance to hone those skills and keep those seamanship skills um, sharp uh, was excellent as well. Um, so it was it was planned for uh, two weeks, unfortunately. Uh, we lost a couple of days in the middle because as tends to happen in September, uh, a hurricane rolled up the coast and uh, we lost a couple of days. So we uh, we took shelter for a couple of days, but, uh, but re-emerged for the exercise. So one of the aspects about the exercise and kind of touching back on our point about geography is NATO would typically participate. NATO allies would typically participate because, you know, they can come over, you'll have U.S. assets participating. So it's a great opportunity to have allies and demonstrate interoperability. Um, Mm -hmm. But obviously world events precluded. Uh, That was the only reason I I assumed that, that um, NATO allies didn't, didn't participate this year. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's that's it exactly. It was just uh, the commitments in and around the continent are uh, pretty significant right now, as you can imagine. So uh, again, the United States Navy came out in force, and we had a, it was a great couple of weeks with one of their submarines. Um, Windsor was out for a couple of days at the beginning, um, and uh, like I said, lots of maritime patrol aircraft, a couple of our new cyclone helicopters as well. It was uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of great exercises. Yeah. So you touched on that. The focus traditionally has been anti-submarine warfare, which I think is growing again in prevalence. Um, You know, everybody who's been serving over the last 20 plus years has primarily been focused on counterinsurgency operations. Mm -hmm. Um, So now we're shifting towards a peer or near peer competition. And um, the prevalence of submarines around the world, I don't know if people really appreciate how many there are out there. And, uh, and that skill can atrophy very fast, anti-submarine warfare skills. Yes, it can. Um, I would say that we have always kept our foot in that game. Like we never let that atrophy, like I, I mentioned a bit of online warfare and, and that skill fading a bit, but I would say that anti-submarine warfare, it's where we started uh, kind of as a Navy. It's really where we, we cut our teeth uh, in the Battle of the Atlantic um and hunting new boats and doing um real asw across the atlantic and uh we as a navy take extreme pride in that and uh, i think it really still serves as the foundation our you know it's our core and we we did focus heavily uh post uh, 9-11 on interdiction operations from op apollo to op artemis and, and and whatnot um we never let the anti-submarine warfare skill uh, totally atrophy. Um, and uh, not just in the Navy, but in the Air Force uh, as well. They shifted focus to the CP-140 maritime patrol aircraft during the uh, war in Afghanistan. Um, you know, they had shifted to a lot of uh, more surveillance activity rather than anti-submarine warfare. But I would say in the last uh, seven or eight years, they have successfully uh, re-pivoted back uh, into uh, into ASW and uh, are now, you know, top of the world at what they do as well. So I think it's going to be a, an important role for Canada in uh, in these, you know, competition, this competition and potential adversarial uh, relationships that we have with authoritarian uh, regimes around the world, both in the Atlantic and the Pacific. And uh, it's definitely a place where I think Canada and the Royal Canadian Navy can uh, can show leadership. Hey folks, here's a message about our sponsor, Cubic Defense. The episode you're hearing today speaks about high-end capabilities. Such capabilities come from the training that warfighters undertake to be the best prepared that they can be. Cubic Defense is a market leader in training operators to be proficient in the application of their platforms for their warfighting mission. From well-integrated instrumentation systems to game-based learning, to multi-domain, blended, live, virtual, and constructive training environments, Cubic Defense remains the U.S. allied and coalition partner of choice to deliver truth in training. Cubic's Total Learning Platform is a maritime, game-based learning platform that has proven to reduce the time-to-train watch standards on U.S. LCS combatants by 90%, and Cubic's blended, live virtual and constructive open standards based solution enables live and virtual ships and aircraft 
to train together in a common, secure, synthetic environment. At all levels of combat preparation and execution, Cubic Defense delivers real results. We are proud to have Cubic as a teammate for this podcast, and we thank them for their faith in us to help preserve the voices of military leaders like our guest today. To learn more about Cubic Defense, please visit them at cubic.com. And now, let's get back to our guest. One of the things that I've often thought about in, you know, my reporting and research and, and knowledge about the Royal Canadian Navy and the Canadian Armed Forces writ large is we actually, I think, have a wonderful capability resident within the Canadian Armed Forces to really excel at ASW. And I say that because I think about the fact that the Royal Canadian Navy has diesel electric submarines, which are very quiet. And therefore, I would surmise a challenge to detect. Um, so if you can train against them, that's that's good training. Uh, and then on top of that, you have the CP-140s, as you mentioned, and now the Block 4 Aurora is coming online. So it's got even more capabilities. And then on top of that, you have the Cyclone Maritime Helicopter, which is specialized in anti-submarine warfare, and that's brand new, relatively new. And then on top of that, the Halifax class surface combatants are all getting an underwater upgrade. So when I think about all of those things put together, it just makes me think that Canada could really be on the forefront. As you mentioned, it's never atrophied. Um, and this is where Canada really cut its chops in World War II. But to me, you have all of the elements to really be global leaders in this ASW realm. Yeah, no, I completely agree. It's uh, exciting um, as the Halifax class, although hitting the 30-year uh, mark-ish, um, these ships are going to be operating for another 10 to 15 years uh, as CSC is introduced, um, and they start taking those ships start taking up the uh, the meat of the operational demand. Um, we're going to be leaning heavily on the Halifax class, um, and you know their combat systems, as you know, were upgraded um, not that long ago um, and are still very very capable. Um, but the ASW suite wasn't, um, but now it is, and it's going to be state of the art, um, as is the, uh, as you mentioned, the uh, CP-140 and Cyclone sensor suites are the best in the world. Um, they're just remarkable, absolutely remarkable capability. It's as a, uh, officer with ASW background, I can say it's shocking to see how effective these systems are. Quite frankly, it's uh, pretty impressive to see. That's great. Like, I mean, that's what you want to hear. It costs a lot of money to invest in these things and, and to develop that capability. So it's heartening to hear that they're doing what they're advertised to do. Um, yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned Windsor. So for those of our mm -hmm. international listeners that aren't familiar, HMCS Windsor is a Victoria-class submarine that is on the Atlantic coast right now. And so you mentioned that they were out at the beginning, but unfortunately they, they weren't able to participate in the exercise full on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. They uh, they were out before the fleet sailed. So they were out doing their own uh, training exercises. Um, and the fleet, uh, we came out um, and, and Windsor was there for just a couple of days. And then a uh, technical issue came up. So they had to return to port and miss the rest of the exercise. But luckily... We had uh, an American uh, Virginia class submarine participating throughout, which was just a phenomenal experience for uh, for both the Canadian and American surface ships, and of course all the patrol aircraft as well. Just a 
when you get a chance to operate with a world-class submarine like that, it's, it's special. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Like, I mean, it's, it's such an amazing capability in the Virginia class. And it's great that you had that out because clearly the exercise wouldn't have been the success that it was, particularly for the maritime patrol aircraft, if you didn't have a submarine. So having that Virginia class um, is pivotal for the exercise. And you referenced it a little while ago, but there was a considerable maritime patrol, maritime aircraft aspect to this exercise. Um, if you don't mind, share with me the participants, because I think it's it was pretty significant. Well, yeah, we had our, uh, obviously, the uh, Canadian CP-140s, but uh, we also had uh, P-8s from uh, the United States, P-8s from United Kingdom, um, Germany, and uh, Atlantique aircraft from uh, France. So we had basically 24-7 aircraft coverage throughout all of the very complex and lengthy anti-submarine warfare serials, um, which, from my perspective, is the best way to do ASW training, uh, not to rush it but to, to uh, have nice, deliberate serials. And it worked out wonderfully. And I think um, across the board, we just had wonderful uh, training. Yeah. Were those guys able to be out uh, also for the fleet week? Did they arrive in time to participate in some of that? Yeah. Uh, sadly, I don't think the bulk of the air crews, um, they would have been down. Uh, they were working at a Greenwood. Um, and I think the bulk of them arrived just in time for the start of the uh, exercise, unfortunately. That's a shame. Maybe that's yeah. something that, that could be tied in in the future. Well, well I, I think when the word gets out on how great Fleet Week was, uh, everyone's going to want to be there early next time. Cool. So watch out for watch out for 2025. It's going to be good. <laughs> Right on. Um, so let's talk a little bit now about some of the other assets that you had out there, because you had Arleigh Burke class destroyers, you had the Canadian Halifax class. Those were the two primary surface combatants that were participating during Cutlass Ferry 2023. Um, did you have a support ship or refueler available to you guys? Yes. Yeah, we did. Uh, wasn't So as you know, we in the RCN have motor vessel asterisks. Uh, but um, Asterix is currently uh, executing operations in the Pacific, um, so wasn't available for Carlos Fury, uh, but uh, we had um, William McLean, a uh, auxiliary tanker from the United States Navy, support the exercise, and it was wonderful. Uh, again, it's, uh, it's hard to uh, have a, a good two-week exercise if you're always watching the fuel gauge, so it was uh, fantastic to have... Uh, to have them there to uh, support. Yeah, and and that capability really is so pivotal, isn't it, Commodore? Because uh, you know, you mentioned MV Asterisk. You know, it's it's such a great capability for for the Royal Canadian Navy and allies. Mm -hmm. But just having any supply ship or a refueler is it allows you to stay out at sea for longer, and instead of wasting time coming back into port, refueling, and doing all those evolutions. It's absolutely fundamental to everything a Navy does. Um, it all starts with having that uh, ability to sustain your ships at sea um, because you cannot you cannot sustain an operation by running into port every five or six days um, at the most. Um, and that's if you have a reliable fuel source to go to. Um, if you have to sail for three or four days to get to a reliable fuel source, uh, obviously doesn't work. So you've uh, absolutely fundamental to everything we do. And luckily, uh, the protector class um, will be rolling out here uh, 
very soon um, on the West Coast uh, with HMCS Protector and then uh, uh, HMCS Preserver, who will be the East Coast a couple of years after that. So that's really exciting. But in the meantime, Motor Vessel Asterix, who I had the opportunity to uh, sail with uh, during a task group exercise earlier this year, the absolutely phenomenal platform that's just providing critical support to the Navy. So uh, just a wonderful ship. Yeah, I, I've had the fortune to go aboard Asterisk as well, and uh, I came away very impressed with that capability. And um, and I think anyone who has sailed on it is probably a little bit envious of of the living conditions on board. And you know that's not a diss on the Navy, but uh, um, it's just a different way of, uh, I guess, living. Right? Yeah, yeah, a heated deck in your shower. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. That's 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 pretty sweet living anywhere you can get it. <laughs> totally. Totally. I completely agree. Yeah. Um, so one of the other things that I wanted to touch on during this conversation was Max Bernays. The mm-hmm. AOPS. it participated mm-hmm. during Cutlass Fury. And I know that one of the other AOPS during an Operation Nanook exercise, and that doesn't sound right because an operation and exercise don't fit, but I think there are exercise aspects mm-hmm. to the operation. There um, are. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but during an op Nanook, a AOPS used a towed array to do some underwater search. And so I'm wondering with the primarily ASW focus of Cutlass Fury, if that was exercised with Max Bernays. Mm. Yes, so the uh, the total ray that um, it's a DRDC effort um, has been trialed. Uh, we didn't use it with Max Bernays during Cutlass Fury. Um, so one of the challenges that we've had with the Married Wolf class of ship is uh, getting our technicians the training they needed. They need so a couple of issues kind of. Um, you know, uh, collided and created a more significant issue for us. First was COVID, where we, much like the rest of the world, shut down some of our training pipeline, um, which, so the throughput for that, the actual absolute critical moment, just as we're getting the class underway, uh, the training pipeline kind of narrowed, um, was, well, it shut off uh, for a while there. Right. Um, which caused some issues. And then um, as soon as that was rectified and people started flowing again uh, we encountered some technical issues with the the uh, class that kept them alongside for about seven months um, so all of that essentially led us to a point where we did not have enough technicians to get all of the ships to sea uh, and we're still recovering from that uh, so it's all about uh, it's been about basically prioritizing which ship needs to get to see when and when they do get to see, to focus their efforts on force generating engineers and the critical technicians that we uh, that we have on board. So, so uh, Max Bernays did participate, um, but it was minimal participation. Really supporting by um, being a kind of a target launch platform for uh, for some of the targets that we use, mm-hmm. and um, and that was about it. So they would come out and join, do some maneuvers for their own training, get do some engineering training, provide the target support, which is actually pretty critical, um, and uh, then head back in because they uh, they would only come out for the day and then head back in for night. Okay, interesting. And yeah, that is a critical role for sure to to support the targets that that the combatants would would train against because. From my experience, I was out for Trident Fury 
this year, 2023. And uh, now there are nuances to everything, of course, but for Trident Fury 2023, um, HMCS Winnipeg, which was on the tail end of its operational cycle before going in for refit, was the ship that was launching targets for the rest of the fleet. So um, that's a combatant being used for that role. And so therefore, you know, the, that flight deck is now fouled and because you're using it for that stuff. So uh, another great use of, of the AOPS, um, you know, they're, they're getting training to be out there, but then they're also supporting the exercise with this critical role that you could free up from a, uh, a combatant like a Halifax class. Yeah, no, absolutely right. So, because uh, we, Charlottetown and Fredericton, the two Halifax class that were participating, both had cyclones embarked. So they needed their flight decks. So if Max Bernays couldn't support or wasn't there to support, we would have had to leave a cyclone at home, which hurts the entire exercise. Right. Um, so if we had wanted to continue with the target launching, but Max Bernays came out, did a great job uh, supporting. Uh, like I said, and we got in a ton of uh, great uh, air defense exercises thanks to Max Bernays. Awesome. And so in regards to the the targets, um, I assume you were launching Vindicators? Uh, Correct. Or... Yeah. Yeah. And... Yep. Vindicators. Right. And then from a surface perspective, did you use any hammerheads or anything else? Yes. Yeah. Lots of, uh, yeah, several hammerheads, lots of Vindicators. Those are the primary those are really the only two yeah, types of targets that we use this time around. Okay. No, no H set. Uh, no, I think we used uh, hammerheads throughout. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah, and it, yeah. You know, it's, it's a more challenging target. So that's, that's a good thing. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, a lot of, and the weather was, except for the hurricane, the weather was uh, fantastic for gunnery. So we got a lot of good, good surface gunnery in and it's uh fun seeing the difference between the Halifax class, uh, you know, smaller, uh, more rapid firing, quite accurate gun compared to uh, the Arleigh Burke, you know, much bigger, much bigger gun, also extremely accurate and capable. But uh, the Hammerhead, they they did well, though. It was, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, well, it's super cool. And how, how was that collaboration between, uh, we are demonstrating interoperability as part of Cutlass Fury. So, you know, in this case, between sea assets and air assets, but also between allies, you know, with the US and, and Canada. Um, how did that go? Because even though you're part of NATO and, you know, of course there's the NORAD alliance and what have you, um, still integrating takes practice. It does. Yeah. And if we don't do it, then that's why the exercises like Trident Fury and Cutlass Fury um, and all the exercises that we uh, participate in elsewhere are so important because if you don't practice it, it atrophies, you lose it. Um, but we do this all the time and we do it around the world with our allies. And uh, this one was, uh, I was actually, I have to admit, shocked at how well it went. So typically um, what a, an experience has, has been has been, you know, some communication challenges, some challenges establishing a common, a shared operational picture in the first few days. Uh, but in this particular case, it was basically instant that we had uh, the communication and the, and the shared picture and, and, um, and it maintained throughout the exercise. So it was really reassuring to see. There are some, you know, as we uh, move forward and continue to 
maintain uh, the, the current the Halifax class ship. There are some upgrades that we're going to need to, uh, I think, to progress in order to ensure that we can completely uh, link in with our Five Eye uh, allies um, in all aspects. Uh, but but uh, certainly um, the fundamentals of integrating communications and the and the picture and um, and and um, yeah, communicating throughout combat at sea, uh, we're able to to do that, and it went extremely well this time. Um, and that's more often the case. We're getting really we're getting we like we practice this often, uh, and we uh, we're really good at it. And it, it was just it's always reassuring to see it go go so well. I'm so glad to hear that, and I, I can't help but ask uh, Commodore if you don't mind to maybe elaborate a little bit more on that because. Um, I believe you are Link 16 capable, but where do we need to enhance that capability? Yeah, there's there. That is an excellent question, um, and there is work underway to. Um, while there are there's communications modernization uh, project underway, um, there's work underway to determine the roadmap of of uh, how we get from where we are today to to where we want to get. Um, in the near term, um, as far as, uh, again, maintaining uh, the system integration capability with our Five Eyes allies. So that work is underway um, within our force development teams uh, to make sure that we have a path that's uh, charted so we can um, ensure that the scarce resources we have are being spent exactly where they need to be spent um, and when they need to be spent. So, yeah, mm -hmm. that's underway now. Okay, so that pathway is still to be defined. It's not being implemented yet. Specifically, that's right. So there's, there's, yeah, exactly right. Okay, cool. Um, so I'm really interested because I'm familiar with the West Coast, but what is the operating box that you have in the Atlantic to do an exercise like this? And what kind of instrumentation do you guys use in terms of validating what you're doing and how to take lessons learned and, you know, disseminate that information. And I guess really the natural follow-on question to that is, what were the lessons learned from Cutlass Fury 2023? Yeah, so uh, we operate in the uh, the Maritime Atlantic, Maritime Force Atlantic operating areas um, just off uh, the coast. Um, it, unlike other ranges, there's not an instrumented range per se for us to closely track uh, submarines or the surface forces to know exactly where they were at all times and when they were doing countermeasures and the specifics. So really what we rely on is post-after after action reports um, and piecing, uh, piecing serials together to determine um, what worked, what didn't work. Um, and uh, yeah, that's really ultimately what we rely on. Um, and the perspective, you know, the uh, the honest perspectives from the commanders on both sides of the exercise so that, you know, they can share their opinion on how it went. Um, and we use all that information to kind of glean whatever lessons we can out of it. Um, so I think in an ideal world, you'd be able to go onto a perfectly instrumented range. And, uh, and, and there are exercises where we do do that. Uh, but in Canada... Uh, and really, the ninety-nine percent of the exercises we do around the world—that's not the case. But um, so, yeah. So we did get a ton of great 
lessons out of um, out of Cutlass Fury, um, and a lot of it does have to do with the interoperability uh, work. So a lot of uh, lessons related to Link and how we manage those networks, um, and particularly with uh, you know uh, aircraft that uh, are operating Link Eleven and how um, that that integrates with um, Link Sixteen and, and making those pictures meld together. The other one I would say is that we had a great opportunity to involve our shore-based trainer, the distributed, uh, the DMOC. I, now, for the life of me, I can't remember now what it stands for. There's, uh, there's way too many acronyms in military yeah. life. <laughs> distributed distributed mission operations. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, where, where we do um, shore-based trainer and we can actually connect our operation room trainers that are ashore with ships at sea and during college period, we proved um, how we can do that with vo- support voice communications as well. Okay. Um, so it was pretty, pretty exciting. So uh, we're on the cusp of being able to have Pelos Fury 25, for example, if we have two or three frigates at sea, we'll be able to have two more ops teams ashore in the trainers um, operating as if they were, they will look, they'll be in the link picture. They'll be in the voice communications the only thing that won't be is you won't be able to look out the window on the bridge and see a ship there. Um, so we uh, we proved and got some valuable lessons on how to make that uh, work better as well. So that's going to take our training to a whole new level, um, and it's really exciting. And we're going to be able to use that when the ships are alongside too. Um, so so extremely exciting. So what you're referring to, if I read you correctly, is essentially live, virtual, and constructive. Yep, that that's right. Um, and um, yeah, so it's going to be a game changer for us to be able to have uh, ops teams ashore participate with ops with uh, ships at sea and link in our, our aircraft simulators as well too. Greenwood, the uh, CP-140 simulator can do the same thing. So, so yeah, really exciting. Uh, like I said, we're on the cusp of some really big moves uh, training-wise and we got a lot of great, great lessons out of Cutlass Fury this year. Hey everyone. I'd like to take a quick moment to speak about our co-sponsor for this episode, and that is Federal Fleet Services and Davy Shipbuilding. This episode focuses on the high-end warfighting capabilities of Canadian warships. Warships like these are best enabled by support and replenishment ships, making them strategic assets. Federal Fleet Services supports the Royal Canadian Navy through the ownership, operation, crewing, and in-service support of their mission-critical combat support ship, MV Asterisk. The Asterisk provides replenishment at sea services, cargo handling, helicopter operations, and operational support to the Royal Canadian Navy, thereby ensuring that Canada can project its naval operations worldwide. The company provides an integrated turnkey service encompassing all the required capabilities to operate and manage ships worldwide, and throughout the entire life cycle of the platform. The Asterisk was built by sister company Davy Shipbuilding, Canada's oldest and highest capacity shipyard, which is now a part of Canada's national shipbuilding strategy. Davy Shipbuilding specializes in the construction or the conversion of large ships for navies, coast guards, and commercial operators, and has the capacity to do multiple builds at the same time. Davy is also home to a Naval Support Center of Excellence for the refit of the Canadian Patrol Frigates. 
Designed and built by Davey, the asterisk was delivered to the customer on time and on budget, an accomplishment that is seldom achieved in the defense industry. It has been in continuous and uninterrupted service to the Royal Canadian Navy for six years and has performed replenishment at sea operations involving over 15 Allied navies around the world, and that means it has become an integral part of Canada and NATO's maritime defense capabilities. To learn more about Federal Fleet Services and the Combat Support Ship Asterisk, please visit federalfleet.ca and visit Davy Shipbuilding at davy.ca. Now, let's get back to our guest. Did you have any other primary goals out of Cutlass Fury that you wanted to exercise or test or evaluate? Um, I don't know if there was an evaluation aspect to this or, or if it was just more exercising. There was, well, there were, um, there were a couple of aspects like that. Uh, the, for me, per, like for one of, one of the things I want to get out of it is one of my responsibilities as kind of the Atlantic fleet is uh, the staff and I are the um, designated staff so that if a Canadian task group needs to deploy, we would be the staff that would take command and deploy with it. So right. mm-hmm. as is always the case, although I did get, to see with the staff uh, in February of this year as well for a couple of weeks um, with just with Canadian ships. Um, this was a great opportunity for us to go out and exercise command again, but of a much larger fleet and exercise some of those real warfare duties. So, and as we were talking about anti-submarine warfare, got an opportunity through some of those lengthy, complex uh, important anti-submarine warfare serials execute the duties as the uh, the anti-submarine warfare commander and um you know take command of multiple aircraft you know a large surface fleet against a top of the line professional uh, adversary so um for me it was seeing the staff gel over the two weeks come together um communicate with the fleet effectively and command the fleet effectively so um it was a wonderful experience uh, and tons of lessons came out for the staff uh, and I. So really wonderful. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, you mentioned earlier about you know some of the gunnery that took place against surface targets and air targets. Uh, just so I have an appreciation of exactly how things went down. Uh, did you do any surface air missile shoots or was it all gunnery shoots? Yeah, the uh, missile shoots as a part of the exercise were all simulated. So we didn't fire um, any missiles um this time out uh okay. but that's not not that's not off the table for 25 at this point but um um lots of simulated uh fighting involving the uh involving missiles but yeah no no live missile shoots this time copy okay and you know that leads me right to the end of our chat here and that is to speak about the next iteration i'm kind of curious like or we shared earlier that this exercise happens every other year is there a reason for that? Like, could this eventually be an annual exercise or do you foresee this just being a biennial exercise for the foreseeable future? And yeah, what is planned for the next exercise? Um, yeah, so for now, I would say it's probably going to stay a biennial exercise because there's a whole, uh, our alliance, uh, like I said, we train together all the time and um, there's a real rhythm of exercises. And this kind of time frame every two years is where we've created a spot where we maximize the possibility of uh, getting participants over. So I think 
you know, for the next one, we might see it shift a little bit earlier, uh, a few weeks earlier in the year, hopefully to avoid another hurricane situation, to take advantage of a bit better weather, uh, but maybe a, maybe a bit more of the summer, a chunk of the summer for the fleet week as well. Uh, but the timing just for the start of the, the school year and stuff like that for our allies it can be a challenge. So, so we're finding the sweet spot for that. But I think right now, just based on, like I said, the, the alliance rhythm of exercises, it's probably going to stay every two years. Um, and to be honest, because of the size and complexity and the, uh, you know, the size of um, my staff is not huge. Uh, so it takes, a, it takes some time to, uh, to plan. So we need at least a full year of planning to, uh, to put something together. But um, so, yeah, 2025, um, like I said, we're going to do uh, another ver- second version of the International Fleet Week. Um, and uh, we're just starting to have the initial conversations about what uh, could go into that exercise. But right now, um, you know, a lot of uh, potential excitement on the table with uh, probably asterisks, uh, hopefully supporting for a bit, uh, more anti-submarine warfare, uh, with one of uh, one of our own submarines participating as well, um, and uh, like I said, I think we're having some initial discussions about a missile shoot as well. But we'll see what uh, what happens there. Lovely. I'm I'm looking forward to it. And as you mentioned about asterisk, you know, it just makes me think that um, as you used Max Bernays this year as as a platform to launch targets, you know, asterisk has a huge flight deck too. So you know, if you've got it out there refueling, you could use it for that role as well. 100%. It would be the perfect platform. Yeah, right on. Well, I am totally looking forward to Cutlass Fury 2025. And I thank you, Commodore McLean, for sharing uh, your perspective on this year's Cutlass Fury. It sounds like it was a really valuable exercise and some good training and good takeaways. So uh, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to share that with us. It's been a great pleasure, sir. My pleasure, Jody. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. That, my friends, was Commodore Trevor McLean, the commander of the Atlantic Fleet. If you have any questions for us at Go Bold, please reach out to us at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. And we hope you'll join us for another episode. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.